Welcome to Answers That Count. If you own a business, you can count on us to give you the answers you need to succeed in all aspects of your business. And now, here's your host, Charles Musgrove. Hello, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us for another exciting episode of Answers That Count. I'm your host, Charles Musgrove. Thank you for joining us. And please remember to hit the subscribe button that you see down below. Hit the subscribe and you can hit the bell so that you're notified. That, that just lets you uh, get notified when, when we post another video. We try to post these videos on a weekly basis. Sometimes we've got more than, than one that we post uh, each week. So uh, thank you for tuning in. And we try to provide the answers that, that you're, to the questions that you're asking. How to run your business better. What can make a difference in your business. We're trying to answer questions about economic theory and how to relate theory to what's going on in today's political, today's economic environment that we're all living in. And man, what a what a year that has been in 2020. So uh, we're not through with it yet. We still got another month or so to go in 2020. Today is December 4th, and I'm coming to you from uh, 30A Studio in Santa Rosa Beach, Florida, and I'm in Studio A for Answers That Count, and we've got Professor Joe Calhoun from Florida State University joining us on the show today. Thank you, Professor Joe, for joining us. Well, great to be here. I'll call myself in Studio F for Florida State University. I like that, Studio F, and... uh Thank you for joining us. This is going to be another great show. Man, we are going to talk about something that, you know, people forget. And uh, it's, it's something that, that may sound dirty, but it's uh, the, def- the budget deficit that we have as the United States. So it's one of those things that people, they may get, give lip service to, but it's one of those things that is just hard for people to pay attention to. And it's hard for uh, politicians to address it and try to uh, reduce that, that budget deficit or even even spend less on an annual basis than rev tax revenue that's taken in. So this is a problem that is not going away, but it is a problem that people have been very quick to kick down the road and let somebody else deal with it. So, uh, Joe, I, I, I'm going to rely on you to, to be objective in this and give us uh, some economic theory on this. So I, I'm looking forward to the show. Well, great. Yeah, we definitely. This is not a Democrat versus Republican. This is just how politicians act. It doesn't matter what letter they have after their name. They're all going to act in a very similar way. So th- this is very bipartisan. There's no reason that we need to throw names around. Uh, we're just trying to understand behavior. Absolutely. And this is one thing that, that really in the, these uh, shows that we've done about economy and economics is this is really... Um, objective in the viewpoint. Uh, the book was written way before what we're dealing with now in, in uh, current economic times, but it's it's relevant. What we see is written in economic theory. We can see how it plays out. And one of the things that just keeps coming, o- coming to us over and over is incentives matter. Incentives really drive people to to the decisions that they make. And, and we're going to in the second part of the show today, we're going to really see how that that plays into the the budget deficit and, and addressing that issue. Yeah, I tell my students all the time, if you want to understand somebody's decision, if you want to understand their behavior, you look at the incentives that are placed around them. And if you don't like their behavior, then you need to change the incentives. Absolutely. And if you like their behavior, you keep their incentives the same. So this is where economics and psychology actually overlap a lot. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting that that you say that, and we we've, we've come to a lot of the recurring themes is uh, just that, and that psychology and economics and politics they're all just kind of bundled together and how they really drive each other. Yeah. So as we get started, let's just make sure everybody understands two simple definitions, but a lot of times they're used interchangeably. We want to make sure everybody has a, a good understanding. The national deficit is the yearly number. So every year, Congress has a fiscal year, a 12-month year. It starts in October and runs through the following September in which they have an annual operating budget. And if they spend more during that year than what they take in in tax revenue, that's the national deficit. That is just a one year. And if they, if they have the opposite, if they have more revenue than they do expenses, then they run a budget surplus. The deficit and a surplus is an annual basis. The national debt is different. It's the accumulation of all previous surpluses and deficits. Right. Role playing example, let's suppose we start at zero. In year one, we have a fiscal year deficit. That means we'll have a national debt. And then in year two, if we have another deficit, then our debt gets bigger. So think about the debt as the the snowball, the cumulative effects. So it's under, it's important to understand deficit and debt are two different things. Absolutely, good good point to make that that clear because we're going to be talking about those terms as we look at some of the historical data, uh, some of the historical charts. So I think that's important, and we'll we'll uh, refer back to those definitions as well. So before we get into the uh, I want, I want to prop your book, but I want to do that right before we talk about the, the theory. Let's look at some historical charts. So John's going to bring up a few charts we're going to look at the, that shows us that national debt. So the, the accumulation uh, of the, the, the national the debt, the deficit that we incur every year. So this is the deficit. So this is the annual uh, deficit that's incurred on an annual basis. So this is not the accumulation. This is the annual activity. So we can see those large spikes that we have there. So let's look in particular at around the 40 to 50. That's that's the that's World War II. If we back up to the 20, that's World War One. So we can see that clearly when the annual spending surpassed the surplus was in war years. So if we look to the far right, we are finishing 2020, and it's already surpassed the uh, the 10% number. So uh, we're going to look at another chart. So so just in in relation for 2020, other years that have been double digit have been war years. So uh, you know you've heard it heard the the term this year that we're in a war against COVID. Well, that that's really true. I mean it, it it's an economic war. It's a health war. So we've all been in somewhat of a, a war that we've that we've been in, whether it's whether the death rate has been equivalent to what's incurred in a war or not, we have the economic results of that surely do look like a war year. Yeah, and I just want to point out to everybody that the way this graph is illustrated is probably the most conventional way of illustrating the annual deficit, and that is as a percentage of gross domestic product as a percentage of overall economic activity. Typically, it doesn't really help us understand what's going on when you just put out the exact dollar amount, whether it's a trillion dollars or half a trillion or whatever the number is. Usually, the more meaningful 
way to express it as it's expressed here is not in a number, but as a percentage of the overall economy. Right. So it's always in, in relation or relative to the overall economy. So that's a good point. And we'll see that in another chart, too, that we look at in just a moment. So right. uh, let's look at the next chart, John. So this this is a. Yeah, so this chart shows uh, on an annual basis, uh, you've got the year in the far left column. And then in the next, in the if you go from left to right, the first numerical column shows the deficit for that year. So that's, those are the equivalent to the numbers that we just, those are the raw numbers that were incurred on an annual basis. So we had a deficit in the, in the year. The next is the debt increase. So this shows the amount of deficit that increased for that year. And then the far right column of numbers is that percentage that we saw in that first chart. So uh, if you look at 2020, you see the 17.9. So that 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 correlates very well with the previous chart that we looked at that showed we're we're already going to be over. We know we're going to be over a 10 percent uh, de deficit to GDP for 2020. And that if you compare that to other years, we're looking at war years. If you look back in the 2010-2009 year, that's when we had the financial crisis. Uh, even in those two years, we didn't go over 10%. Uh, so most of the other years are are 2 to 3%, some are 4%, some are 5 6 um, And then you did have a couple of years. <laughs> the, the surplus years are very few in number. I think there's, there have been four surplus years in the, in the charts yeah, that so we looked at. A nice way to summarize that table there is out of the last 55 years in which we have annual deficit numbers for, four of those years were in surplus, 51 were in deficit. Wow. So 51 out of 55 times, the federal government spent more than what they took in in revenue. Wow. That's, um, it's easy to spend more uh, than you bring in because that's just an easier path to, to get what you want. So uh, if you look back in the 40, 40, 41 is when we, December is when Pearl Harbor occurred with December 7th, which is coming up on Monday, the anniversary of Pearl Harbor Day. Uh, and then you see 42, we're in full year of war then, 43 and 44, 45 is when it ended. So those were the years that we were definitely over 10% and even over 20% in those years during the war. So uh, in any event, those are, you know, those are things if you think back historically, you can understand and make sense out of that and even justify the the large deficits in those years. Uh, it's really, Joe, if you, if you think about it, um, 51 out of 55, we weren't in war. We didn't have war. No, we weren't yet. in war that many times. And, and especially, yes, we can basically call ourselves in war right now, but it's not a traditional war that in the way we normally use that term. But, you know, if you think the last 20 years, we really haven't been in a traditional military war, but yet we've seen some of the largest budget deficits, either in percentage terms or in dollar terms, that we've ever seen. The national debt is growing exponentially in times of at least military peace. Now, right. we've had some economic wars. I mean, we had the recession of 2009. That, that was very dramatic. Obviously, we're dealing with the pandemic right now. That's very dramatic. But you do have to pause and ask yourself, well, let's even remove those. Let, let's go to full peacetime. 
So let, let's pick out a year, 2015. Basically, everything was at peace. We weren't in a military war. We weren't in any kind of pandemic war. We weren't fighting any economic recession. Things were going very well. Why, even in a good year, do we still run budget deficits? Right. What's going on with our congressman and our president that even during good economic times, we're still running a yearly deficit, which is then adding to the previous years of deficits, which amounts to a very large debt. What's going on there? Well, and there's some actually very simple, logical explanations for that. So do we want to do the, the last chart before we get into those? Logical yeah, let's look at that last chart. And, and the last chart is going to, uh, so this, this shows kind of what we've looked at before, plus it, it projects out for uh, 20 to 2030 also. And Joe, we're we're keeping with the trend. We're keeping with his historical results. There, there's no we don't jump above the curve and have a surplus. We're still uh, just keep eking uh, deficits on an annual basis. So it's uh, you know it's it's crazy. It's like that deficit spending has become the norm. And if you ran a business, you would you would be bankrupt. No bank would loan you money uh, if this represented your business, and you would. You would close the door or you would, you would, you know, what's the definition of insanity is continuing to do the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Well, that's kind of what we're, it, the, this is kind of the definition of insanity right here. I mean, 51 out of 55 years, we've run a deficit year and we're projecting that to go forward. So how are we going to do something different to change that? Well, what's interesting is, as you alluded to, this only happens one place in American society, and that's at the national government level. Individuals can't maintain this level of deficits for that many years. Any business can't maintain that. I don't know of any state that has an exception that uh, allows for deficit spending. Every state requires a balanced budget. State of Florida certainly does. So it doesn't happen at the state government level. It only happens at the national government level. And that's because the rules and the incentives are different at the national level. Like I said, almost every state that I know of has a balanced budget part of their constitution. They're yeah. literally not allowed to run a deficit. We don't have that kind of restraint at the federal level. So it's no surprise. Once again, people respond to incentives. Right. Yeah. So look at national politician, you look at a congressman, a senator, and the president of the United States, they don't have that restraint. And then you couple that with their incentives. What are their incentives? Well, their incentives are two. Number one, to get elected, and number two, to get re-elected. That's right. And if if that's your main incentive, and, and I'm not suggesting there's anything wrong with that. I mean, if, if I'm running for office, certainly I want to get elected. And if I have an office, I want to get reelected. So there's nothing wrong with the incentive. But the incentive then leads to decision making such that that national politician has every incentive to create immediate benefits or at least short term benefits and push those costs out into the future. Well, how do you do that? Well, you do that by deficit spending. You issue a bond today that says, give me the money, allow me to spend it. And that bond isn't going to come due for 5, 10, 30 years. Right. So I give you the benefits today, but I don't have to pay for it for 20 or 30 years. Okay. That's a great incentive to respond to getting elected and getting reelected 
So as a result, what do we have? We have a deficit every single year. Yeah, we're seeing the, the result of that. of that. Is the politician says, "Well, I'm going to great, I'm going to create benefits today, but if I have to balance the budget, then I also have to tax and provide fees and, and taxes to to impose the cost today." And that's not an incentive that politicians respond to very favorably. Right. They don't like to make very visible costs. They like to make costs invisible or put out into the future, but they certainly like to have the benefits very visible and very immediate. Right. Quick terms uh, fix. So it's almost like a, a drug addict. We're all addicted to to the money and let's let's get the benefit now and we'll pay for it later. And Joe, this is, um, I mean, what we're discussing is not, as we mentioned earlier, is not politically biased. These are economic theories and and we've been talking about your, the book that you're a co-author on, Common Sense Economics. And, and specifically today, uh, we're, we're on page 132, which is uh, in Section 6, which actually is addressed to this topic. It's, Unless restrained by constitutional rules, legislators will run budget deficits and spend excessively. That's the title of this section. And, and we talk about, as you just mentioned and I mentioned previously, incentives. So incentives are really driving these decisions. And that, that really clearly states what the result. If, unless there's a higher power or higher standard that's going to restrain them from spending that money, they're going to spend it now and run up the deficits. They're going to spend more than the tax revenue that comes in to cover those, those annual costs. Yeah, and it, it forces people to make decisions differently. So let's go back to either the individual or the individual business or even the state. If you have a balanced budget constraint imposed upon you, your choices and trade-offs are much different. You say, well, if I want this benefit, I have to give up this other one. I can't have both right. because I can't run a, a budget deficit. Well, if you free yourself from that, now your choices are much different. Now you can say, well, yes, I can have this benefit and I can also have this other benefit and I can pay for it 20 or 30 years from now. Well, that's a whole lot different decision-making process than if you're forced with some kind of balanced budget amendment that requires you to make trade-offs and choices in a much different way. Yeah, and I, we're not trying to simplify the process of what creates deficit spending because you can make an argument that more taxes are more in line with creating a surplus or less taxes, less regulation, stimulate more growth and more spending, therefore bringing in more revenue. So there's a, there's a, the whole argument there on more taxes or less taxes result in either less or more deficit spending. So that's a, that's really a whole nother uh, subject and I think we've touched on that in the past uh, but bottom line is if decisions are made that result in a deficit spending then we're gonna this is what we're gonna have yeah there's no surprise that when we look at the data any economist would predict that's exactly what you're going to get because you don't have the restraint so this is comes as no surprise to anybody if you don't have a limiting rule, you're going to wind up with what we actually have wound up with 51 out of the last 55 years. Yeah. So if the American society says, you know what, I don't like that trend anymore. Well, the only option is to change the rules to impose some kind of limitation. Was there and a it have to be a balanced budget. It could be maybe that the 
annual deficit can be no more than 2% of GDP. I mean, you know, there's lots of different rules that you can put into place to try to minimize this. Yeah. Now, the other issue is how big of a problem is this? I mean, you know, yes, we've seen record deficits and a growing national debt. So let's go back to pre-COVID when the economy was going well and, and we didn't have to deal with the virus. We had a, a very strong economy. So some people will say, well, you know, what, what's the big deal here? Yes, we're running deficits and yes, we're accumulating national debt. But look, unemployment was historically low. The economy was growing very strongly. You know, what, what's the problem here? So that's also the other thing we need to consider is, you know, how big of a deal is this? Is this something that we really need to be concerned about? Or is this something just for a bunch of economists to talk about and have fun with? Well, Joe, that's I a good question. You've you've asked that question. So, what what in your opinion? What is the is that a big deal? I mean, it seems as an as an accountant, as a CPA, that seems to be a big deal. That's that sooner or later there has to be a reckoning or an accounting for that that money that we've spent in advance of receiving it. Yeah. Well, the good news is. Well, let me back up. The bad news is when you look at the data. Currently, the national debt is over 100% of our annual gross domestic product. I think mm-hmm. we're in a neighborhood of about 125% right now. Right. Now, some people will say, oh my gosh, that's, that's doomsday scenario. You know, that's just terrible. We don't even have enough total income in our country to pay off our debt. Well, that's actually not so bad news because remember, most of that debt is in the hands of the U.S. Treasury And there are lots and lots of treasury bonds that expire, not just next year. If all those bonds expired next year and the debt was 125% of our income, that truly would be something to be concerned about. But like I said earlier, those bonds have maturity dates anywhere between three months and 30 years. So we don't have to pay that $27 trillion off tomorrow. It's not a bill that's imminently due. It's a bill that's scattered throughout now for the next 30 years. So uh, there is good news there. The other good news is a lot of those treasury bonds and debt obligations are owned by U.S. people. True. That's true. The Federal Reserve owns the biggest chunk of that. And then you've got private individuals, you've got pension funds, you've got mutual funds, you've got all different kinds of financial institutions that own that. So- if we take this back to a personal level, it'd be kind of like if you were in a deficit in your checking account, but you had a big surplus in your savings account. Right. Well, that's not anything to be concerned about because you just owe yourself. Right. And that's the other thing we need to keep in mind that a lot of this federal debt is owed to United States citizens. Right. Now, what some people are getting concerned about is who else owns this? Right. What foreign governments own it? Yeah, we're we're up to about seven trillion of the twenty-seven trillion is owed to non-U.S. citizens, either individuals from foreign countries or what is more likely the scenario is uh, central banks and other financial institutions from countries like Japan and China. Most people think that China owns most of our foreign debt, and that's actually not true. Japan owns a little bit more. China is a close second, but they are second. So you have the Central Bank of of China and other financial institutions in China, same thing in Japan, and scattered throughout the world. So it's not just one country, uh, it's multiple countries. And in total, it's about $7 trillion. 
Now, for some people, that's that's a, a great concern. That's maybe a national security issue. For other people, you know, that's not so big of a deal. And that, that's really a personal opinion about how you think that should be a big deal or a, or a small deal in terms of how much we owe to foreign countries and, and foreign citizens. All right. Well, good. So um, we're running out of time for our regularly recorded show that goes on the radio. So we're going to have a little soft break and we're going to continue this discussion. But one other thing, if you can address this in uh, just a few, just a few, a couple of minutes, you got a couple of minutes to answer this question, Joe, is what is the, uh, and I want to come back to another question as we close out, but Keynes, so what is the role that Keynes has played in this whole deficit spending in our in our history? Well, you're referring to John Maynard Keynes, yes. which is actually spelled K-E-Y-N-E-S. He was a British economist, very smart guy, very famous. He came along and uh, wrote a book called The General Theory, and he prescribed a solution to the Great Depression that was happening both in the United States and around the world. And basically, the Keynes solution is a national government should run a budget deficit when the economy is weak to try to stimulate it, to get it going. And when times are good, then they should run a budget surplus. Now, the difficulty of that is most people who implement that policy are only what I call one-way Keynesians. They, they only run a budget deficit. Right. When <laughs> going well, they refuse to run a budget surplus. But that was the full prescription of Keynes. But it's only been followed about half the way. And it cannot be understated the enormous influence that Keynes made on both the economic intellectual world and the political world when his book was released and then fully embraced in the 1960s. He wrote it in the 1930s, but it really came into play during the Great Depression, or excuse me, during World War II, and then uh, the, the several years after that. So in terms of the so-called Keynesian revolution, we really kind of date it back to the late 50s, early 60s. And we've seen since then, when it was fully absorbed by both the economics, intellectual community and the political community, that we've seen that 51 out of 55 years. Yeah, so you can Keynes, see. Yeah. Enormously influential. You can see where the politicians fully embrace that, at least on the one side. Let's, you know, that kind of gave them cover that we it's. Yeah. They can justify the deficit spending now. Unfortunately, they never read the other part of his theory that said, in, right, yeah. in, they only it, read half. Yeah. In the good times, we need to build up a surplus. So, very right, interesting. Yeah. They, skipped, they skipped that part of it. Yep, exactly. So, I'm going to leave you with this question and we're going to roll right into this. You answering this question after, after the small break, but let's talk about off balance sheet liabilities also and how that affects this whole uh, deficit, the accumulated sure. deficit that we have. So, we're going we're gonna to take a small little break right now for the radio show, and this is Charles Musgrove. I'm the host of Answers That Count. Thank you for joining us for another exciting episode. Those that are watching on YouTube, just hang on. We'll be right back. We're just going to take a small little break here. You won't even miss it, so hold on. Answers That Count is brought to you by The Bean Team. For all your business accounting needs, visit beanteam.com for more info. You can listen to more episodes of Answers That Count on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. Or visit AnswersThatCount.com. 